0: Morning. My name is Mason Ballard. I'm the lead pastor here at Res, and we're really glad that you've chosen to come out and worship with us. We are in the middle of a series through the book of Galatians. This morning I'll be preaching from the text that Trey just read uh, so well for us, verses 1 through 15. Uh, before we jump in, just a reminder of a couple of things. Year in 2018 is Uh, somehow finally upon us. And so um, be listening in the next several weeks for an announcement for uh, our members meeting to approve the 2019 operating budget. So uh, this is not that formal announcement, but it will be coming probably next week. They've been working on it this week. I've been working on it. And uh, we'll get that to you uh, for your consideration and um, the Lord will's approval uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, We're going through a membership course right now. Next week, Lord willing, we'll have a baptism here for one of our prospective members. And that's been going well. If you want to be in on that and you've missed the last couple of weeks, you feel free to come next week at 9 a.m. Uh, and if you would like to join, we can meet outside. I have a couple kind of outstanding conversations to have still. Um, and we can get you in the process and, and, and get you connected with what the Lord's doing here at Resurrection. One of the most important verses in all of Galatians is in our text today. It's verse 1 in Galatians chapter 5. Let me read that even here in the introduction. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The Galatian church has all kinds of problems. There are false teachers who have worked their way in the midst of the Galatians. And as we see in this text and as we've seen throughout this series, the issue at hand is this relationship between law and grace, between the things that we do and the things that God has done for us. What is the role of our works in the life of faith? Well, many false teachers have worked themselves in and among the Galatians, and they're teaching that if you're going to become a Christian— Fellow Gentile, right, fellow non-Jew, if you're going to become a Christian, you have to accept circumcision, right? You have to take on this outward sign of belonging in God's people. And this was for many a trivial issue. For many, they didn't see why it was a huge deal. But Paul, in fact, knows that in this issue, the integrity of the gospel is at stake. And what is the antidote to the Galatian problem? Ultimately, I think the answer we see here in Galatians 5 is freedom. Freedom is the antidote to the Galatian problem. Paul did the Galatians, and I remind us this morning, Christians, we are called to freedom. But I don't think our culture fully understands the sort of freedom we're talking about. I think freedom can be scary. I think freedom can be confusing. There's some reverb or something on my mic that's driving me crazy. I don't know uh, what it is. Uh, Maybe it's just me up here, but check that out if you can. But freedom can be scary. Many of you have heard of uh, a great American, Harriet Tubman, who would help sort of escape slaves, find freedom via the Underground Railroad. And if you know anything about Harriet Tubman, she was not just a calm little docile lady who accepted things as they were. In fact, Harriet Tubman, you could say, was a a pistol-carrying lady. And what I mean by that is there was one particular instance where she was helping uh, a group of freed slaves begin their voyage from bondage and then to freedom. And she is working with this one particular uh, young man who is just scared to death at the prospect of freedom. And can you blame him when the stakes are so high if you're getting caught? And so they're working their way sort of away from the plantation from which he was escaping, and one night he had sort of a uh, a crisis of faith, if you will. He his his flesh was will, or his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak, and he decided that the life at the plantation wasn't so bad after all. Not that he enjoyed it, not that he wanted it, but the fear of being caught, the fear of what lied ahead, was overtaking him. And Harriet Tubman, with the grace of God, <laughs> took her pistol, puts it to his head, and you say, "You get freedom." Or you die. (laughs) You're not going back, she told him. You get freedom or you die. I think this chapter, the Apostle Paul is acting a little bit like Harriet Tubman. He's reminding the Galatians, you get freedom or you die. That particular freed slave, oh, that's the handheld mic? It's not up here. So it's not the handheld mic. It's all good. This time out brought to you by Toyota. (laughs) Great cars, great prices, great people. I don't know what our saying is. It's a little better now. I can deal with it. I won't be too extra. Paul is reminding his people that they will get freedom or they will get death. Church, we've been blessed with freedom. And we must use that freedom to bless others. The title of today's message is Gospel Freedom. Verses 1 through 6 will give the exhortation, don't lose gospel freedom. Don't lose gospel freedom. And then verses 7 through 15 will provide the exhortation, don't abuse gospel freedom. Don't lose gospel freedom and don't abuse gospel freedom. Let's look in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you boiled Galatians down to one verse, this just might be the verse you would choose. If you were to ask, what's the main idea of this whole letter that Paul's written, it might be this one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I have three questions to ask of this verse. From what has Christ freed us? For what has Christ freed us? And now what, since Christ has freed us? From what has Christ freed us? Just using the Pauline corpus of literature, we know that Christ has freed us from the curse of the law. Christ has freed us from the curse of Adam. Christ has freed us from spiritual death, that we don't have to be afraid of sin and death and life apart from God. Christ has freed us from the fear of death. Christ has freed us from condemnation. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has freed us from the power of sin in our lives. Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin in our lives. Christ has freed us from the dominion of Satan over our lives. Christ has freed us from this fake idea of the dominion of the self over our lives. Jesus has freed us from so much. For what has Christ freed us? The text says it's for freedom that Christ has freed us. We're freed for freedom. We're free to love, free to experience joy, free to exude joy, free to love the things that God loves, free to be about the business that God is about. And now what? Since we've been freed for freedom, how do we then live? The answer, Paul says, flows from that indicative. Stand firm, therefore. Therefore, since you've been freed for the sake of freedom, stand firm. And don't look longingly back to Egypt. Meaning don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus is our ultimate liberator who frees us from the greatest enemy from which we need freed. Verses 2-4. through Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, it's important to note that Paul is not here discussing whether a genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. That's not the issue at hand. He's simply saying that if people who once made a profession of faith are seeking justification by the law, they have fallen away from the grace that God has so freely extended to them. Paul's message is simple. If you accept circumcision... If you accept circumcision because these false teachers have told you that to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. If you've heard that message, you said, yeah, I get that. I'm going to be circumcised in accordance with what these guys are teaching. Paul is saying that is not trivial. If you do that, Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I don't care the profession you've made. I don't care what you say you believe. If you believe what these people are teaching, and if you accept circumcision as a way to try to make yourself right with God, Christ will not be of any advantage to you. I'm not a math guy at all. But here's a simple formula if you're taking notes. I think you should write down. Jesus plus something equals not Jesus. Jesus... I think that might be algebra, maybe some trig, I don't know. Jesus plus something equals not Jesus. When you essentially add something to what Christ has done or say, you know what, I'm gonna believe Jesus, but I'm also gonna try to earn my way with God. I'm gonna believe this and I'm gonna believe this. If you add anything to that, you end up with a, with a product, an answer, that is not simply Jesus. You either trust law or you trust grace. Ultimately, you either trust yourself Or you trust Jesus in your place? And that question is a penetrating, thought-provoking, heart-searching question. Do I trust myself or do I trust Jesus in my place? Uh, Several months ago, many of you remember my my uncle passed away. And um, by virtue of Charleston's airport being somewhat expensive, we were flying home from Pittsburgh, Nick and I, from uh, our denominational meetings. And uh, my uncle was in the hospital at Pittsburgh and he was uh, really, really not in good shape, and I got an opportunity to have uh, like 20, 30 minutes with him uh, to ourselves, and I've never been in a situation in my life where I'm talking to someone who, you know, palliative care is outside the door, and uh, pastorally, I've thought about this many times. I've talked to people about what they would do, but when you find yourself in the situation, it's It's intimidating. And I thought about it and prayed about it, and, and one of the things that we talked about in those final few minutes was just that question I asked. Do you, do you trust yourself or do you trust Jesus in your place? Like looking back on all the life you've lived, like, do you trust that it's good enough to earn your standing with God? Or do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus is good enough to earn your standing with God? Church, we either trust ourselves and our efforts and our religion or we trust Jesus. There's no middle ground. If you accept circumcision, believing it's going to help you be justified before God, Paul says you've, you've, you've neglected, you've negated, you've, you've counterbalanced the very profession that you've made. Jesus plus something equals not Jesus. In verses 5 and 6, Paul reflects on the objective benefits of our union with Christ by grace through faith. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you're taking notes, I might write this down. We don't work for righteousness. We wait for righteousness. Righteousness. We don't work for righteousness. We wait for righteousness. And let's talk about what I mean by that. Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith, instead of by works. You could even do a corollary here where Paul says, for the Spirit, by faith. You could, you know, The opposite would be what? For through our flesh, by works. So we're contrasting for our, through our flesh, by works, with through the Spirit, by faith. Through the Spirit, by faith. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. No other religion, no other people can live with such gospel confidence. Paul is saying we eagerly look forward to our hope of righteousness. We eagerly look forward to death. We eagerly look forward to the coming of our Lord. We eagerly look for that day where our righteousness is realized when Christ appears, who he himself being our righteousness Secular people can't live with this confidence because they have no idea what the future holds. Like the wind, they go from ideology to ideology not thinking how they all fit together. Doing the best they can to navigate the tricky waters of postmodernity. And religious people aren't in much better shape. They're anxious about if they've done enough. Have I prayed enough? Have I fasted enough? Have I given enough? Have I gone to synagogue to mosque to worship? Have I gone to these things enough? Religious people obey rules and hope it's enough. Secular people just sort of sift through all the information and try to chart their own course and hope that in the end all things just kind of work out. If you're either of those people this morning, let me introduce you to Jesus who has walked the path that lies before you. He has lived the perfect human life. He has died in your place, and he's risen again for your justification. That Jesus can do what your religious efforts can't do, and that is make you right before God. Jesus can do what your secular look into what the meaning of life is can't do, which is tell you who God is, how he's made you, why he's made you, and that he loves you. In Jesus, Paul says, this idea of circumcision, uncircumcision, it's just silly. Faith is the sign of God's offspring, not works. By faith we wait in hope. By faith we love the brothers and sisters. The text uses some curious language when it says only faith working through love. And I want to make the case this morning that faith quite literally energizes love. Faith has the ability to sort of create and move us to love. And let's talk about what that means means. I sort of introduced that dichotomy of religious people and and secular people on sort of two different poles here. Religious moralism. Religious moralism, this idea of I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to try my best to please God. Religious moralism is essentially a self-serving venture. I got to do what I got to do to get myself where I need to be. And non-religious sort of a paganism, act in a foolism, whatever we would call it. Whatever the opposite of chasing morality, maybe chasing immorality, right? It's on the opposite pole of morality, but essentially it's the same thing. It's a selfish venture. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow I die. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what feels good. I'm going to live with this illusion of freedom. I would argue that both are essentially self-serving ventures. I would argue that both are anxiety-inducing, insecure ventures. And I would then argue that selfishness and insecurity cannot produce love. Selfishness and insecurity can't really produce love. If I love you because you feed my ego, I don't love you, I love me. And you become a means to my end. Selfishness and insecurity can't produce love because love is joyful self giving, love is joyfully giving ourselves away. For a person, object, thing that we love. But faith in Christ, unlike moralism and unlike rampant immorality, immoralism, immoralism, faith in Christ does what neither of those things can do. It frees us from ourselves and affords us the freedom with which we can love others. Don't miss this, Paul is teaching. Freedom is at the very heart of the gospel. Stop falling for this debate. Oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. You're free, brothers and sisters, Paul says. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. Jesus has come, as he says in Luke 14, to, to free the oppressed, right? Jesus has come with a message of freedom. Now, the second half of our sermon, verses 7 through 15, Paul warns, the Galatians, don't abuse gospel freedom. Now, verses 7 through 12, before we um, sort of jump into that theme of not abusing gospel freedom, verses 7 through 12 read almost like a pastoral interlude, right? Verse 7, you almost hear uh, this emotional roller coaster the apostles on. You are running well. <laughs> You were running so well, you got it. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. You can almost hear the notes of exasperation. Guys, you had it. You were running so well. This ideology, this stuff that's crept in, this isn't from God. I know it seems like a small, minuscule thing to you, but verse 9 a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It messes up all the bread in the batch. And then you see, or hear rather, notes of hope return in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Notice what Paul didn't say. I have confidence in you, Old Galatian Fellowship Baptist Non-Denominational Community Church. I have confidence in you that you guys, by the good of your hearts and the, the, just the skill of your wits, you're going to figure this out. Right? He says, I have confidence in the Lord because Paul knows that the one who begins a good work in us is faithful to see it to completion. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Whoever is up there while I'm gone teaching you that to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Whoever is up there teaching that you can earn God's favor by something you do, whoever's teaching you that, he's going to get what's coming to him. And I have confidence that this gospel message cannot fail. Verse 11, apparently there were rumors that whatever these false teachers were preaching was essentially the same thing Paul was preaching. And Paul addresses those rumors that sort of lie underneath in the background of the text that we think they're addressing. If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, as is some are accusing him of, saying, oh, the thing that we're preaching, Paul preaches the same thing. If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, well, why am I still being persecuted, <laughs> right? If I'm preaching the same thing you're preaching, then why do y'all want to kill me? If I'm preaching essentially the same message, then tell me why I have to leave cities because the Jews in the town are trying to literally take my life. If I'm preaching the same thing, he says, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12 is some strong language. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, I really try my best to preach Uh, not coarsely, you know, especially being a young man. I don't want to come across as brash or, you know, use language that's unsettling or unhelpful. But I can't sanitize this text because if I sanitize this text, I've done something that the Holy Spirit didn't do to the text. The way the NIV editors translated this text was, I wish those circumcisers essentially would just go all the way and circumcise themselves, basically. Paul is saying, I wish these people who are troubling you would emasculate themselves. Paul is furious. Paul is livid that these false teachers have come among the church and are leading people away from God because Paul understands that life and death are at stake. This is not trivial. This is significant because it gets at the heart of the gospel message that the gospel is about what Jesus has done and not what we must do. And then in Verse 13, it all comes full circle. Look with me in verse 13. Again, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Here's the warning. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. After a stern, stern beginning to his letter, Paul says, brothers, you were called to freedom. Brothers, you're free. Relax. Jesus has done it all. Now knowing that Jesus has done it all, what you do now will tell us who you are and will tell us who you're, what you really love. Paul essentially says, hear me, hear me, hear me. Do not abuse your freedom. You are not freed for your own sake. You are free to serve one another in love. Wait, 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 right? Isn't this whole letter, isn't this whole letter about the fact that we don't have to obey the law to gain right standing with God. Yeah, I think it is. Well, then why in verse 14 is Paul concerned with the fulfilling of the law? Right? If Christ has fulfilled the law, why in verse 14 does Paul say something like this? You know, for Through the law, for the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why, why should we concern ourselves with obeying that law? If it's true, right, if God's done it for us, then why should we care about obeying, obeying it? After all, we are free. We're free now, right? Christ has freed us. We can do what we want. The obligation that's gone is the obligation to obey the law for salvation. Now that we have salvation, wholly and freely by God's grace, why would we not want to obey the God who's freed us? Why would we want to give ourselves to anything else? If the Lord has freed us, why would we return to the things that enslave us? The law shows us God's heart. It shows us God's heart for how we should live. And if God is our freer, he's our emancipator, he is the one who's led us out of slavery, surely then submitting to him is the most freeing thing we can do we're saved from obeying the law as a means of earning merit with God but we're not freed from obeying God's law as a way to please God how does this work what does this look like tim keller gives us a case study and he says it better than i ever could and so let me just read a couple of paragraphs so i hate when people read to me but bear with it uh, bear with us and we'll get you get you there tim keller gives us a case study of lying as this relationship uh, between sort of we're saved from obeying the law as a means of salvation, but now that we're saved, we want to obey what God teaches because we love him. Uh, uh, Tim Keller sort of minds that uh, relationship here. Take a lie, for example. Take a lie. On the one hand, gospel freedom means I don't have to fear what I will, that I'll be cast off from God if I lie. I am free from the legal penalty of that lie. The person who is seeking to be perfectly honest as a way of sort of winning God's favor will be devastated when they slip and lie. But the gospel assures us that even dishonesty will not condemn us. We need to ask a better question. Why did I want to lie? Why did I want to lie? I've said this many times. This statement changed my life about a year ago. I think... Augustine didn't say it this succinctly. Someone else did, but Augustine gets at the heart. The greatest Christian theologian ever gets at the heart of this idea. We're not primarily pushed by what we believe. We're primarily pulled by what we want. So we need to ask the question, why did I even want to lie? And if we find the answer, it will be because we felt that we needed what we faced losing if we told the truth. A person who must have approval or power or comfort or success to have joy or worth will do whatever it takes to get it, even if that means lying. They will lie to keep that functional savior. But a person who knows the gospel in their affections as well as their intellectual understanding will say this, I don't need this thing. Therefore, I can tell the truth. If I lied, it would not change my standing before God. I'm free to lie, but I don't need to lie. And why would I want to lie? The gospel does free you to live any way you want. But if you truly understand through the gospel who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then you will ask, how can I live for him? And the answer will be, look at the will of God expressed in the law. The gospel frees us from the law for the law. It does away with our old, selfishly motivated and unloving law obedience. And it motivates us to obey God out of love. church, we are freed from ourselves. We're not freed for ourselves. This is nearly impossible to understand in a culture where freedom is synonymous with this sort of philosophical libertarianism, right? This idea that freedom means just complete autonomy, that freedom means I do whatever I feel like, whenever I feel like it, and however I feel like it. But I would contend that's not the biblical definition of freedom. In our sinful state, we are enslaved by our sin. We are enslaved by Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us this reality. He says we're all sort of following this course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. So in essence, what Paul's saying is this. We were all just like everyone else. We were just sort of going about life and following the whims of the day, following the culture of the day. But here's the thing. When we're just being like everyone else, What we're actually doing is we're sort of all walking together. And what we all don't know as we're walking together is that we're all following someone. And that someone we're following, Ephesians chapter 2, you can go read it if you don't believe me, right? Who we're following is the prince of the power of the air. And then Paul says, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So when you're just following everyone else, right, you're just doing what feels right. Maybe you go to church because that's what your culture does. Maybe you don't. Maybe you go to a mosque because that's what your culture does. You know, you're just living for your family. You're just living for power. You're just living for success. You're just living for education. You're You're just, you know, I don't know. I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. That you're actually following a course that someone's leading. And that someone who's leading that course is taking you somewhere. And wide is the gate to the place he's taking you. Because he has fallen from grace. And he doesn't want anyone else to experience God's grace. And he will do whatever he can to convince you that he's worth following. And that just being like everyone else and just following them is no big deal. But narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were following everyone else. But God who loved us, even when we were loving sin more than loving Jesus. Even when we were at our worst, God loved us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show us the greatness of his riches in love towards us in Christ Jesus. Don't miss this, church. Freedom is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You're free from everyone else. You're free from sin, you're free from Satan, you're free from yourself, you're free from anxiety-inducing religion, you're free from anxiety-inducing irreligion. Jesus has purchased you. Jesus has successfully lived the life you should have lived and he offers it to you and he says, come and follow me and find in me the life that I've called you to live. The life I now live, I live in Christ. To live is Christ, to die is Gain. You are free, but you're not free to just indulge yourself because indulging yourself is what you did before you were free. You are free to love and you're free to serve. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, boy, that sounds like what we can do in churches, man. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. How do we use our freedom? Do we use it to put a bubble around ourselves and say, hey, listen, man, I'm an American man. I'm free. You can't tell me what to do. I'm free. Blah, blah, blah. You say, listen, man, Christ has purchased my freedom for me. And with that freedom, I'm going to love people. I'm going to love the people in my fellowship." I'm going to love the people in my family. I'm going to love the people who exist ethereally on the internet as bubbles on a screen, right? I'm going to see people how God sees them. I'm not going to bite and devour. You're probably not physically biting them. That's really odd. I'm not going to spiritually bite them, right? I'm going to live with malice and ill content. I'm going to love one another because I believe in loving one another. We are free to build one another up. So this morning, we're going to approach the Lord's table together. So worship team, if you guys want to start making your way up here, and we'll um, administer the elements in a moment. We're coming to this table as a family of people who are freed. We're freed from the power of the world's expectations of us. We're freed from the sting of unmet expectations. We're free. And we gather as one people around this table, a freed family to partake, team, of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. As they make their one way on stage, uh, I invite you to just sort of reflect on this message and ask the question, has freedom been my experience of the Christian life? I think there are some of you maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I think there are some of you who um, I mean, you just not experience freedom. You're just enslaved to religion. And you're consumed by what other people think of you. You're consumed with the idea that you might not be good enough. You're consumed with this reality that you have failed so many times. And that surely God can't extend forgiveness to even you. And you come to church and you give and you do whatever you can to try to just stave off that feeling of guilt. To try to get right with the big man, to use the phrase that you might have used. You're a slave to religion. And there are some of you who are on the other side of that. You may have stumbled in this morning after a late night last night. And, you know, you're afraid of what it might look like to surrender your desires and affections and your will to Christ. You enjoy your freedom to go and do what you want. Be with who you want. Drink what you want. Say what you want. Love who, what you want. But I would contend that there's nothing more enslaving than the enslavement to wants and desires. To both of you this morning, the person who was early because they wanted to earn God's favor, and the person who was late because they ain't thinking about God's favor, Jesus leaps off the pages of the scriptures as your liberator. Jesus frees you from the bondage of religion. Jesus frees you from the bondage of irreligion. And Jesus beckons you to come. He has died in your place. He has done what you cannot do. He has earned you a spot in God's family. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Don't submit again to the yoke of religion that seeks to earn God's favor. Don't submit to the yoke of wanton desires that tell us we can do whatever we want and not be affected. Submit to King Jesus, who has set you free, that you may love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to pray for us. And after I do, uh, I invite any believer who's here this morning to join us at our family table, to join us at the Lord's table, uh, to partake the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ that's shared for you shed for you and shared I guess let's pray Father we see from the very beginning of the Bible the principle that sin enslaves and God delivers Lord Adam and Eve thought they were Exercising their freedom by doing what they wanted. But really, they were laying that freedom down and submitting to another king, the enemy. But Lord, you would not be defeated. Your plans for humanity would not falter. And what Adam and Eve put down in the garden, Jesus has picked up on the cross. You have purchased our freedom back. You have saved us from an enemy far greater than the Pharaoh. You have saved us from sin and death in all that it brings with us. Lord, you have freed us from having to perfectly obey the law for salvation, and you've extended Jesus to us in whom is redemption and forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, Lord, as we come to your table, what we're saying is we cling to Jesus. What we're proclaiming is that Jesus has come, Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus has ascended to heaven, and Jesus will come again. And this is the news that will free humanity. This is the news that has saved my life. This is the news that has broken my chains. And this is the news that I must spread to the ends of the earth. We love you, Lord. And we ask now that you'll meet with your people as we gather around your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the next few moments, feel free to join us at the table, and then we'll close with a song.